right, so as I said, we're excited to have Melissa Schilling. Um, so this is the July 9th session. All right, so now going on to my next slide. Why is this not letting me control this? I think the problem's on my side. There we go. Can you guys see that? I had the same thing, Heather. Instead of um, hit your um, keypad instead of your arrows. Hit my keypad. When I hit my, there you go. There we go. I, you know, this stuff is, is, is so fantastic until it doesn't work, as I said. Okay. All right. So, Melissa, I'm going to run through a couple things about Melissa. And then, as I said, I'm going to have some questions. So, Melissa is the Herzog Family Professor of Management at New York University Stern School of Business. She started actually at Boston University. She's there for only a couple of years, and she's been at NYU ever since 2001. Her PhD is in strategic management from the University of Washington. And prior to that, she has a BS from the University of Colorado with, it looks like majors from marketing, finance, and biology. So an interesting background. And I think probably that's led into some of her publications on things like Alzheimer's. I'm assuming the, the biology interest is, is kind of what we're gonna, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, I looked at this yesterday, maybe a little higher today. Yesterday, 17,762 Google Scholar citations. So definitely we have some impact here. Um, some of the things that I want to touch on, she's had uh, NSF career grant. Uh, she's also gotten a Kauffman Foundation grant. And so I think for people listening today, thinking about getting grants, uh, getting some funding for your research, I hope we'll cover some um, interesting topics there. Uh, she got a best paper in management science and organization science award in 2007 for the year 2007. I think it was awarded five years later. It was a paper that had high citations. Um, if I remember correctly, it was the Interfirm Collaborations uh, Networks paper, um, so best paper. She's got some textbooks, which I also plan to cover so a couple of questions on that in terms of thinking about public publishing not just research in journals, but also cases and textbooks. So textbook-wise, we've got uh, number one in innovation strategy text in the world, the strategic management of technological innovation. And then we've got strategic management that's now in its 12th edition, an integrated approach. Uh, she's got a book, which I actually have not read, but I've seen some clips from it. And so I'm interested in reading this. Um, they published in 2018, which I know she's given a bunch of talks on this because I've seen some summaries of the talks that you've given. Lots of different companies are talking to her about this. So also an interesting path in terms of thinking about scholarship. Um, so her, her actual website says that she does research on innovation and strategy in high-tech industries with a particular interest in platform dynamics, networks, creativity, and breakthrough innovation. All right, and then I've just listed the journals. Uh, she's got several articles in many journals, and so I haven't listed all of her papers, but rather I've just listed uh, a number of the different journals that she's published in. All right, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And I'm going to open this up now to Melissa. All right, so Melissa, um, actually, I guess according to my cheat sheet here, I'm supposed to just provide a couple of comments on myself so that you can understand, I guess, where some of my questions might be coming from. So my name is Heather Berry. Um, I am the program chair this year which for SDR, which meant I got to do two programs this year, not just the normal one, because first we did the regular one and then we redid and did the virtual one. So I had a really special year this year and it hasn't finished and I'm not sure it ever will. So it's been really fun. 
Um, other than that, I'm a professor at GW University. Um, and I study, I actually, I also study um, innovation, global innovation. So I look at multinational corporations and their foreign direct investment. And more recently, I'm into um, innovation. So we'll, we'll certainly touch on some of those things. All right, so enough about me. You're actually here to think about Melissa. All right, so Melissa, the first couple of questions that we've been asking people, we kind of want to get a sense for your past and your path into academia. So things like, you know, where did you grow up? What kinds of things influenced you when you were younger? And really kind of what led you to do a PhD? So yeah, um, I mean, I had kind of an interesting childhood. I grew up in a tiny, tiny little mining town in the mountains, a town called Jamestown in Colorado that had population 188 and 256 if you counted the dogs. So we usually counted the dogs too. Um, and I, I grew up in a cabin with no, uh, with, you know, heat that you had to build a fire for. So I grew up, you know, hauling firewood and cutting firewood and, and, and uh, I was the only child of a single woman who worked a lot. So on the one, we had no gender roles in the house and it was a very rugged, pioneersy kind of life. Even though my mom is a computer programmer for IBM. So she had kind of a tech life outside of our home, but at home in this cabin, we had a pretty rugged life and um, I had a lot of autonomy and a lot of you know, independence because I was just alone a lot and um, no gender roles or anything, which was very empowering. I, you know, all through grade school, I had a very small grade school. I was the biggest, strongest kid in my grade school. So I was like the quarterback of the football team and I was the best wrestler and all these things. But that's because I was in this little tiny, tiny elementary school. And then when I had to go to a regular public school in Boulder, that was a real kick in the teeth because I didn't fit in at all. You know, I didn't know how to wear makeup. I had like jeans from Walmart and, you know, those kids really, um, really pushed me around a bit. Um, so anyway, I got a lot of my positive feedback through school. I think I always really loved to read and I was interested in everything, but I was also very, very connected to animals because I grew up with lots of pets and you know, my mom wasn't around that much, but my dog really was. So my mom always says I was raised by the dog. So when I went to college, I really thought I would become like someone who studied animal cognition. At one point I wanted to become a vet. And then I thought being a vet would be really sad because you put a lot of animals to sleep. And so I was studying biology and I was actually pre-med until they told me I was going to have to kill a frog. And that just didn't jive with my moral code. So I had to like exit pre-med. And then I told them I wanted to study animal cognition. I got really interested in, in studying cognition in higher primates or dolphins, something, something thinky in the animal world. And so I went to the dean of the biology department at University of Colorado and he said, you know, that's great and all, but there's no jobs. You will never be employed. And so then I felt really thwarted. And, you know, other than animal cognition, I kind of liked everything. You know, animal cognition was what I really wanted to do. But other than that, I liked everything kind of equally. And my mom, who was a very practical computer programmer at IBM, said, then you should go into business because in business, you can do just about anything. And so I started taking some more business classes and, and picking up a business major. And, and then one of my professors there, I'm, I'm very grateful to uh, two professors, Sanjay Bhagat and Don Berg. Don Berg, uh, you may know because he's, um, where is he now? He's at University of Denver, I think. He said, uh, you know, you should go into strategy because in strategy, you can study anything you want and maybe you'll find a way to do some of the things you wanted to do in animal cognition uh, in strategy. So I, I, I applied to the strategy PhD program at University of Washington and, and a couple other places, but University of Washington was the one that I kind of was attracted to the most. I thought Seattle was super cool. 
And if you'd have read my essay that I wrote for what I wanted to study when I get there, you would, you would really laugh. And it's part of why I don't pay any attention to doctoral student application essays. Because, you know, my whole essay was that I was going to study environmental racism and how different communities uh, had more contamination and stuff because they didn't have power and things like that. And then I got to University of Washington, probably telling you more than you wanted to know. Uh, but I got to University of Washington and I became very sort of infatuated with the work that Charles Hill was doing. And with Charles Hill himself, I mean, he's got this great Welsh accent and he was very charming and he invited me to be on this project. And so I started working on new product development and innovation. And the funny thing is, you know, flash forward 25, 28 years, something, I don't know, depending on when you want to start that clock, I'm actually now finally doing more cognition. So, so it took a long time, but it turned out that having, having all that biology training in the beginning, it really gave me a nice anchoring point because like everything in population ecology and anything about competition and systems seemed really intuitive to me if I just thought about it in terms of animals like rabbits and foxes or or you know the evol or ants versus geese and um, which, have, which we can talk about later if you if you ask me about my favorite author I'll tell you more about why ants and geese are so important but um, yeah but, oh. that, that's very interesting right so I think the stuff that that we were really interested in in our early life in college like those are really important things to us right so even if you don't end up in a profession that does them it's interesting how you can kind of come back to that and you know cognition and you know Alzheimer's I mean it, these are similar things in terms of Kind of thinking about how the brain works or doesn't work and sort of human cognition right yeah yeah no that's very interesting but so you didn't you have i saw something where you you list like a bunch of jobs that you've had and you've had a lot of jobs so your path like sounded way more linear than i think any of us are right and so like other experiences that kind of influence you to say no no i want to go back to school and be a phd and get a phd as opposed to sort of getting out there after your undergrad and trying to find a job that you know lets you do anything that you want to do. I assume you yeah. have those experiences as well. Yeah. I mean I was I was broke, you know, all through college because I really I had one of those, you know, mothers who was like, you need to learn how to support yourself and and uh, so I never had any money. So I worked all the time and I've had like every sales job you can possibly imagine. I've sold everything from computer memory upgrades to Siamese fighting fish. I want I once worked for a store that sold only Siamese fighting fish. So Siamese fighting fish is one of the things I know a lot about if, if that ends up being something you want to talk about someday. But, um, and then, and then I got, when I graduated from school, I got a job at Procter and Gamble, which was a great job. If you're in, at, in Boulder, that's considered a desirable job to get. But within a couple of months, I just realized how numbing it was because they were going to train you how to talk to people like they had a whole playbook for this this is the way you carry on a conversation and this is how you have to dress and like they didn't i felt like i wasn't getting paid to think i felt like i was getting paid to read a script and i got really frustrated really quickly and i i actually got incredibly depressed because i thought if i don't want this job what am i ever going to want because everybody else wanted that job at university of colorado you know we didn't have the big investment banks and stuff coming to university of colorado we had uh consumer products companies mostly uh, so I had to do some really hard thinking at that point about what I would like to do. And that was the point at which I realized that I loved to study and to think and to write. And it, I guess I knew I wanted to get a PhD and become a professor well before I knew what it would be in, you know, it, it almost didn't matter what it was in, you know, 
It just mattered that I was in a role where I could think and learn and write. Yeah. No, it's a great profession we're in, right? And I think a lot of us sort of went back after working somewhere, realizing just how fantastic it is to, to be paid to think, to be paid to have interactions with other people. And to be a student your whole life, really, right? Because a, a good professor is actually a student their whole life. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. There's so many learning opportunities just from everywhere, right? From your students, from anyone you interact with, from all these different job opportunities that you've had that you know, weren't for you, weren't the right fit, lots of learning that occurs for us to help to form ourselves. Um, so then what did you end up studying in your dissertation? What did you focus on and kind of how did you come about that? Okay, so that's kind of, there's kind of a funny story there. It's a little bit controversial, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because I don't, I don't generally hold much back, but I had actually had to do two dissertations because my first dissertation was a project on new product development best practices that had started with a project with Charles. And I got about two years into it and it administered a pre-survey and had written my whole lit review. I had about a hundred pages written. And I sat down with my committee one day to have this sort of proposal redo to see if I was on the right track. And all my other committee members had taken all these notes. But when we got to Charles, you could tell he hadn't even opened it. And he takes the whole thing and it was like this big and he thunks it down in this metal trash can. He's like, I think I know how we can solve everything here. And he thunks it in the metal trash can and you know my jaw dropped through my lap at that point and he says you need to start over because this is this is too broad and it's not deep enough and there's too much of me in it you need to do something that's more you that's deep and not broad and i was just like the top of my head popped off and and all of my committee members quit that day and i had a choice of sticking with charles and redoing a whole new dissertation or sticking with my original committee and pursuing that dissertation and I ended up deciding that Charles was right that I needed to do something deep not broad so I had to start over. So how far were you into your program when this happened? This was like my third year I think in my third year a hundred pages into my dissertation like I'd already written a hundred pages and administered a survey and spent like maybe five thousand dollars or something which at the time seemed like a, a incredible of amount of money. <laughs> um, um, so I started over but as, as horrifying as that whole thing sounds, it was right. It was the right decision. And it's a, it's a recommendation I've given students ever since. You wanna go deep on something to where you, so that you're getting to someplace nobody else has gotten to yet on something relatively narrow rather than something broad. And uh, it, was, it was the right decision. So did you go deeper into something like product innovation that you had already oh. been focused on? Yeah, so I ended up studying just standards battles in, in industries characterized by network externalities. Okay. Okay. So then basically what you had done for 100 pages was kind of like prep work for a dissertation. Well, it was new product development best practices. I had this idea about this backward induction method where we would take firms, first you'd measure how successful firms were at new product development you'd separate out the great ones from the not so great ones. And then you would study all these processes in a bunch of categories. And then you would formulate hypotheses and then go back and retest with a bigger set. Uh, and I actually ended up publishing some of that work in an article called Managing New Product Development Processes that's in AME, back when there was an AME. Uh, so it was actually, it was a very valuable experience. And, and a lot of that ended up going into my textbook. A lot of the work that uh, I did on that first dissertation went into my textbook. But then the second dissertation, which was on standards battles and network externalities, that ended up being a lot more generative for me because it was doing that that also showed me modularity dynamics and then led me into learning by doing and all this other stuff. Yeah, so I mean, it's, in the end, you benefited 
Oh um, yeah. Having the breadth and the depth, right? It's not exactly. I can't imagine someone saying to me, you know, I'm gonna throw this away, start again. But I mean, in the end, you kind of turned it into lemonade, right? I mean, Charles likes to be provocative and he also doesn't uh, pull his punches. And um, I actually learned a tremendous amount from Charles. So he was, a, he was a very unconventional PhD advisor, but I learned so much from him. It was really valuable. So from that experience, do you have any advice to students who may be on, who are listening about managing their dissertation committee? So you yeah. have a very strong chair. Were the others not as strong? Well, they walked off. They must have been strong as well. Well, I mean, they walked off and then the people that I had to get to fill in the rest of my committee had to be people who would get along with Charles. So um, it had to sort of compromise there, you know, but I would say this, I would say instead of looking for the committee that's easiest to get along with and that's going to support all your ideas, look for the people on your committee with the highest standards. Like the people who are going to be toughest on you and are going to say, this isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. Do it again. Do something better. Do something different. Because th that person's going to push you to be your best instead of giving you the easiest way through to the degree. Because, you know, frankly, the degree isn't worth much if you can't be a successful scholar. It'll just be five years of poverty that leads to nothing. So you, you, want, to, you want to work with the person. Maybe the person is going to be hardest on you, right? Who's really, someone who has high standards of themselves who's gonna have high standards of you. And they won't necessarily be the easiest person to work with. And they won't necessarily hold your hand a lot. Um, and these are all gonna be valuable things to learn, I think. So it's, it's interesting because a lot of people give you the opposite advice. A lot of people say, find really supportive committee members, you know, and, and, and they're sort of tacitly saying, find committee members who support you in all your ideas and give you lots of pats on the head and, and help you. And that feels good while you're in the, in the doctoral program. But that's not going to make you a tougher, fiercer, more persistent scholar, I don't think. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, in the end, your dissertation is not likely to be your best work, but you want people to be pushing you the hardest, right? So right. It, and they can, you know, there are resources you can tap into for the rest of your life as well. Once you, once you have a really strong mentor, I think those, those people are generally, you know, helpful throughout your career. So yeah. Someone who pushes you. Yeah, no, interesting. All right. I didn't realize. Wow, two dissertations. Okay. Um, that's you surviving that is 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 definitely good. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about getting grants and kind of what influence that's had on your career, kind of how you go about doing that, how you've been successful at doing that, and the impact that that's had on you. And then any advice you have for people who are listening who are also interested in trying to get grants. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, we're in an interesting field in that most of us uh, don't need to get grants to pay for our salaries, unlike the, the poor folks in medical science and biology. And I mean, which is a whole nother conversation, but those people have to get grants to pay for their salary. We mostly don't. And I have a research budget, so I mostly didn't need the grant for my research budget either. Uh, but the career grant, I was actually prompted to do it by Bill Starbuck, who said I should apply for it. I hadn't even thought of it, didn't even know about it until he said that. Uh, and then I applied for it. And I have to say one of the most valuable parts about the process was that in the application process, I had to think about who I was as a scholar. The career award is for your whole career. So I had to think about mapping out my whole research path and why things were connected and why I was doing the things I was doing. And that was a really valuable exercise for just getting a big picture on what my objectives were and what kind of research I wanted to do. And I was actually able to drop almost all of that into my tenure package too, right? Like, because you have to tell that story about yourself pretty much for the first time 
when you go up for tenure. And having already had that experience of writing it up for the grant was super, super valuable. And so then when, how far, sorry, how far in advance of going up for tenure did you apply for this then? It was about two years, I'd say. So you already had some publications, you already had an identity and you could kind of work with that to create, this is my career, this is my path for this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I also, it was one of the reasons why, I, in particular, I found it valuable is that um, a lot of people think of me as a generalist. You know, I get into interesting ideas and I'll chase up after them, even if they don't look super connected to what I'm doing. But everything actually is connected. And being able to tell that story in the grant application was super important. And being able to tell that story in the tenure packet was even more important because, you know, the people on my, uh, you know, on the people, the committee that evaluated me for tenure, one of their biggest concerns was that I was too spread too thin and didn't have an identity. And I'm like, whoa, 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 no, let me tell you what this, how this path emerged and why, why these things are all important pieces fit together. Yeah, no, that's right. So again, you got, you got feedback from, so the Kaufman, like Kaufman Foundation grant then is different from the career grant. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, honestly, the most valuable thing about a grant in, is it gives you some flexibility. You know, you can maybe hire someone to do some work for you or buy, buy bigger data sets or bigger computers and, and, and have some flexibility to take more conference trips, things like that. But the, the most important thing I think I got from it was credibility, like legitimacy, like it's, it's a valuable thing to have on your data. Uh, we don't actually count them very much in the tenure process. We are really, really swayed by top tier publications, but it's sort of a little extra bonus that establishes your impact in the field. Um, so, so that was good. Yeah, I mean, I do think at some schools, when especially if you don't have a large research budget, um, uh, grant can be a grant can be really helpful to hire some RAs to really get something moving a little faster. Absolutely. And in the European schools, it, it could be the only way you could pay for doctoral students, for example. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, all right. So then maybe we could talk a little bit about some of your publications. So is there one that you're most proud of? Is there one that you just really think that it either represents, you know, some something that you've wanted to do for a really long time or has pushed the field further or for whatever reason, is, is there one that, that you have that, that you really like the best? Um, well, I'd say one of the papers that I'm most proud of uh, is probably the modularity theory paper, uh, mostly because, you know, when I started that paper, it, it comes out of my dissertation in a way because, you know, when I finished my, this is another funny dissertation story. When I thought I was done with my dissertation, I had administered a survey back when you could still administer surveys in your dissertation. Um, and by the way, now if you went back to my dissertation, you'd probably wonder how I got a PhD. But, but when I was done with that process of survey, Charles came back to me and he said, yes, but we need to hear the stories. You have to write up the stories of all these lockout battles. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. There's 16 cases of lockout in my 16 separate battles with lots of different players in them in my dissertation. And he's like, yeah, but you have to write them up. So I started writing these case studies. It was in the process of writing these case studies that I started seeing these patterns around modularity. And unlike someone like Clay Christensen, I didn't see industries just going towards modularity. I saw some industries going away from modularity. And so I started thinking about that dynamic as a big systems level concept and what would tip a system towards, oh, this looks weird in the screen, towards or away from modularity. And, uh, and I, started, uh, I started really thinking about it as a general systems concept. And when I ended up writing it up for AMR, I 
wrote it as a general systems concept and then applied it to inter-firm product modularity. Like when you have a, uh, when I produce components that work with your components and we can mix and match. But the systems level concept can actually be applied to anything. It can be applied to uh, urbanization and de-urbanization. It can be applied to disaggregation of firms or integration of firms. It can be applied to even biology. So I found that very fascinating. And that led me to start really thinking always about what's the next level up? How do I take any given dynamic, identify the pattern and see where this, the fundamental principles are that will scale up into a larger system. And that has, uh, that has just made everything so much more interesting for me. Whether it makes it interesting for other people is kind of irrelevant but it, it, to me, but it made everything more interesting to me. Because it it's also where I ended up doing small world network work because I started seeing network patterns and I saw them in the brain and I saw them interpersonally and I saw them inter-firm level. And I could see, I saw the same dynamic taking place at all three levels. Now that ended up being hard work to publish because other people, you know, if you send a paper out that has cognitive networks, interpersonal networks and inter-firm alliance networks out to a journal, they're gonna give you a really strange set of reviewers and all of those reviewers are only gonna like one third of the paper. So, so never ended up actually publishing that in a journal, but that is the work that led to just taking one piece of it and doing the inner firm network paper that you talked about earlier. That's actually just one third of a larger paper. Um, so yeah, so I like the modularity thing. And in fact, like uh, at one point, Jackson Nickerson came to me and he said, well, isn't this just transaction cost economics? And I thought about that for a couple of weeks and I realized you could actually derive all of transaction cost economics from modularity theory. Like transaction cost economics is modularity theory just applied to interfirm relationships. But uh, so I, I like that. That's like probably my favorite paper. And so, I mean, what you say is interesting in terms of when you try to bring together really disparate sort of ideas across different literatures, it's very difficult to get these things published, right? Oh, wow. So you end up kind of scaling back. But I do think what you're saying is important in that you come back to that, right? These ideas are what are inspiring you. And so if you can only publish a third of it, you publish a third of it, but you still have the two thirds that you're very interested in and you ultimately yeah. pursue those. Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of hilarious. So we did the Interfirm Network paper with alliances and because of who our editor set was, we actually had to peel all the small world references out of it to get it published. But if you read the paper now, you're gonna see the small world dynamics in it, though we didn't use the small world words because it just was a hot button for some people. And then I ended up doing an interpersonal network paper to kind of tackle the group level stuff with Christina Fang. And we did that with simulations. And I ended up publishing a piece on small worlds in the brain in uh, an insight journal, creativity research journal. Uh, so. So all those little pieces are coming out. But what I think is the more interesting part that I hope to publish someday, I'll come back to it someday, is showing how it's actually all the same process, not just an analogical process. It's not just an analog. And this is where people sometimes get confused. They think it's a metaphor or an analog. It's actually the, the same process. It's fractals. These systems are all constructed pretty much the same at different levels of analysis. And when you strike a shortcut through something and you change the configuration of a network, it is the same process. You're just at different levels in the network. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, so I wish you luck publishing that. I, I do think it'll be difficult, right, to find the right audience for that, but I, I yeah. definitely hope that you stick with it and, and keep thinking about that stuff. I mean, so then the, 
it sounds to me like you don't really have a lot of failures in terms of publications. Oh, I do. I do. I have so many failures. And I think this is what people don't don't realize. I was always someone who threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall. Okay. I, was, I was a pretty fast writer, and I was pretty impetuous about st sending stuff out. I sent a lot of stuff out too early. Um, and I have so many papers that are just like in drawers somewhere, <laughs> you know? Um, and what I would say, one thing, one thing I have learned, so in the, what I had to learn over time not to send things out so early. I had to take some time and get more feedback before I sent them out. But I've also learned the other side of that coin is that you also have to know when a paper is crap. Like there, there are people who are tempted to keep polishing their crap over and over again, revise it and fix it and shift it in hopes that it will become a journal publication. But the thing is, even if it becomes a journal publication, it's still gonna be crap, right? <laughs> so some papers are just crap and you have to let them go. And I've gotten, I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty good now at spotting crap. Well, I don't know. I, there have been papers that I've spent seven years on, so maybe I'm not, but, um, but I think it's valuable to learn. Sometimes it's better to move on to a better question and to just set something aside. And the thing is, someday you're gonna go back and you're gonna use part of that because part of it is still gonna be valuable for you. But the way you set it up or the underlying question or the frame you had just isn't really very interesting or very good or very powerful. And, and rather than spending five years trying to get into a journal with that, you're better off moving to something that has more legs, I think. Yeah. But I mean, it is interesting the way you return to things. And so like a, a failure, like an actual, like, no, no, I'm not working on this. It sounds to me like you don't have as many of those. You've got some things where you're like, okay, this is, I can't save this, but I'm still interested in this base idea. And so I'm going to pursue it and I'm going to bring it into something that makes sense to bring into it. I mean, I have a bunch of, I have a several papers on contract manufacturing you've never seen. And I have some papers on learning that you've never seen and never will see. I have some papers on returns to scale and size and R&D that you've never seen. And, but you know, working on them, it was still a valuable learning experience. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you on that one. I think even stuff that never sees the light of day, right? You've thought through something and, and it's helped you to sort of arrive at a, a new epiphany for something, right? Okay, all right, excellent. So I think that's um, one other question on publishing and then I'm gonna move into your kind of textbooks and cases. but. So you have a lot of co-authors and for people just kind of starting into this, you know, you see people who co-author with the same person over and over and over again. And, you know, they just have this amazing sort of spread of publications. And then you see people who publish with a lot of different people. Um, so looking at your CV, I would say you're someone who publishes with a lot of different people, but you have a couple people that you, you publish with, you know, more than once. So what is, what is your strategy? What are your thoughts on co-authors or what have you learned over time co-authoring and what kind of advice can you give? Yeah, okay, so um, one lesson I learned kind of the, the hard way is that we tend to, I think a lot of people approach the co-author process in the same way we would call resource fit in alliances. Like we're looking for the person who has that knowledge bit that we don't have, that strength that we don't have, and we think we're gonna put them together and they'll be complementary. That is so hard to make work because it turns out the strategic fit bit is so important, like how you get along the rhythm that you work at, how offended you're gonna be by when they turn around and slash all your words and say you didn't write it right. You know, like it, it turns out it's so much easier to write with someone who I just can naturally work with, um, irrespective of what our core expertises are. 
And I'm not going to tell you who the resource fit people were who were hard to work with, but I'll tell you who the strategic fit person probably was, a, a couple of strategic fit people, like Kevin Steensma. He's just so easy to work with because he's pretty easy going. And he's, you know, the parts that I was really intense about on the paper were the parts he's like, oh, you do it then. And like the parts he was intense about, I'm like, oh, you do it then. And we could just, we worked at the same speed and the same rhythm. And it just was, it's a pleasure to work with him. And, um, and the papers moved pretty fast. Whereas, whereas all the resource fit in the world doesn't solve uh, if you have a co-author who just won't get it done or who you just don't like the way they write or they don't like the way you write. And so you're constantly rewriting each other. Um, yeah, I, I find that, that is the worst, right? It's the worst. It's the worst. Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's just not even worth it. I mean, cause I'm pretty comfortable working alone too. So sometimes I'm just like, oh, I just sort of work alone. And part of it too, is that sometimes I'm willing to cut bait on a paper earlier than my co-author, you know, but sometimes you can't cut bait because the co-author wants that really wants that paper more than you do. And so I guess sometimes co-authors have helped me stick with things that I would have abandoned and that's probably good. Um, but yeah. yeah. No, it's good. I mean, it's good to have varied experiences. I think as a junior colleague, you know, you just, you got to explore some things and realize that some things are not going to work. And so you'll find your fit, you'll find your sort of person that you're compatible with. All right, so then let's move a little bit to textbooks. And let's think about uh, cases. And you, so you have a lot of cases, and some of them are really, like, really interesting firms. Um, I'm wondering kind of how you picked firms and how you got into textbooks. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Okay. So, uh, when I was a doctoral student at some point, Charles asked me if I wanted to write a case study about Starbucks. And this is like 1995, right? So, not that many people knew about Starbucks at that time um, because it was still small, it was still Seattle based. And I have read that case, by the way. Oh, you, thank you. I think it's the first case on Starbucks. I think it is. Uh, and so I wrote that case and, and he, and he published it in his textbook and it was my first publication. And so I was thrilled. Um, and then subsequently, you know, when I started writing, well, let me tell you, let me first explain why I wrote the innovation textbook. I wrote the innovation textbook because McGraw Hill, asked me if I would write it. Charles had sent them my way because he knew I had the two dissertations. And so I actually thought it was going to be easy. I'm like, yeah, I've already written about 500 words, 500 pages on innovation. So writing a textbook, I thought it would be easy. It wasn't easy because it turns out when you start thinking, when you start thinking holistically about what needs to be in the textbook, there were areas where there wasn't as much to draw from. Like there were areas you've got to have where we didn't have a strong research base to draw from very easily. So it wasn't a simple matter of assembling existing literature. It was, it was harder than I, than I thought it would be. But I committed to it because I had done those two dissertations, right? And one was sort of broad new product development and the other one was sort of deep innovation strategy. So I thought it'd be really, I thought it'd be easy. And then when I wrote that, that subsequently forced me to start thinking about cases because you've got to have cases to go with the textbook. You know, I have many cases at the front of each chapter and I also wanted to have cases people could assign with a chapter. And uh, so I started writing cases. Now I'm going to be the first person to admit my cases are not going to compare with like a Harvard case where they've got a whole editorial staff and they've got people who run out and collect data for you. And, you know, everybody bends over backwards to work with a Harvard case writer because they, they you know, they want a Harvard case written about them. My cases tend to be shorter, uh, simpler. The teaching notes aren't, aren't going to be as robust as like a Harvard case, but I try to pick, you know, really interesting, timely topics and, 
And then the problem with picking interesting, timely topics is that they obsolesce really quickly. So then you have to write more cases. Like I wrote a case about Docomo, right? And we know Docomo disappeared. I wrote a case about Iridium, which disappeared. And then I wrote a case about PS2, which disappeared. And so I was always forced to keep writing cases because my freaking technologies kept going obsolete. So um, yeah, and I've got a case right now on SpaceX and Tesla and Alibaba, and you know I'm gonna have to either update or replace those cases within a couple of years. Yeah, update, update. So, but so at what point in your career then did you write your first textbook? Uh, I wrote the innovation strategy textbook when I was pregnant with my daughter. So that was 2003, okay. that's when I started writing it. It didn't get published until 2004. And um, I'd already submitted my tenure packet at that point. So I thought I can write this textbook now because my tenure packet is in. Um, but it actually really ticked off some, of, it turned out, it turned out my tenure committee was like really aggravated at me at first that they found when they found out I had a textbook in the works. And I, that took me really by surprise because they said, you know, you shouldn't be writing textbooks. You should be writing scholarly articles. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of scholarly work going into this book, you know? So, um, in the end it all worked out okay. But, but I would say that writing a textbook before you have tenure is probably, probably not ideal, depending on what kind of school you're at. But for the school that I'm at, it, it would not it would not have gone over well to write the textbook before tenure. Yeah, no, I think I think it's good to get the expectations known for wherever you are, right? And if a textbook, some people uh, want to write a textbook because they just can't find stuff that they can use to teach, and so they can put something together that's actually going to help their teaching. So yeah, that's partially kind of where you're coming from. Oh yeah, I mean there wasn't a, there wasn't an innovation textbook that covered everything. Okay, you know how like you know how like a standard strategy textbook. If you look at a strategy textbook and you compare, you could compare fifteen of them. All of them are going to have a pretty similar table of contents because we all kind of agree what has to be covered. And they have a sequencing where they start with like extra industry and then resources and then business level strategy, corporate level strategy, and then implementation. Right. So there's a, a sequence of it makes sense. Well, there wasn't an innovation textbook like that. The, there was a couple innovation textbooks, but they were like buffets where they were just like article compendiums and they didn't have a natural sequence. And they, because they didn't have a natural sequence, they didn't even realize that they'd skipped stuff that was crucial. So my motivation had been, what is the natural sequence for studying innovation? And I structured it very much like a strategy textbook. Like what are the big industry patterns that we can predict? How do we uh, how do we choose projects? How do we form teams? How do we decide whether to do alliances? How do we get intellectual property? Then how do we manage a new product development process? So there was a natural sequence there. And when you built out that whole sequence, I realized that there were chunks that there just wasn't yeah. anything good to cite yet. So I ended up having to write original stuff in that uh, in those chapters. Um, but subsequently, I you know there's great work I think now to cite in all of the chapters. So do you feel like you got rewarded for that when you went up for fall? And are you rewarded for that now? Not at NYU. I'm rewarded by the field. NYU is a pretty narrow school, or historically has been a pretty narrow school in what we value. Uh, and we don't even use textbooks for the most part. Like it's almost considered a faux pas to use a textbook. And yeah, I gotta say, I don't understand that because a textbook is a wildly efficient resource. You know, like there is there is no way you can cover as many articles and material in a class, in a lecture, than I can pack into a chapter that you can have the students read before class and then you can come apply it in class. So I actually, I'm actually a big fan of textbooks. I think they really, really work. 
Uh, but but no, I got I didn't get any appreciation for that at NYU, other than it, it, it helps my citation count. Uh, but I do get a lot of respect for it outside of NYU. So I think that there's a lot of people who give me credit for that outside of NYU. Well, I mean, I, I have I have a great hard, a very hard time finding a textbook that I want to use. And so for me, you know, I've taught long enough that I know the topics that I want to cover. So, you know, this must be a textbook that is perfect for you to use. So even if you don't have the respect of people at your home institution, you're using it and your students are appreciating it. So there is a plus side. Yeah, um, although I have to give it to my students for free or they think I'm trying to make money off of that. <laughs> you, just, you just can't win. There's lots of little, uh, lots of little pits to fall into. No, you can't win this. I mean, we all win. We all win. We're all winners. All right. So I, um, there's about, I'm going to cover a couple more questions and then I actually want to try and open this up to get other people's questions. So there's a couple of questions on here that are kind of beyond scholarship and let's just get to know Melissa a little more. So, you know, one is what's your favorite dessert or favorite ice cream flavor? So chocolate all the way. Like no matter what the dessert is, I'm picking the chocolate thing on okay. the menu. So this one, you could go on for a while, I could tell, but I'm gonna cut you off because I do want to open it up. What's your favorite author? And sort of what's a genre that you're particularly attracted to? Okay, so I have to say that now I feel, in my life now, I don't have like, I hardly have any time to read fiction. I feel guilty reading fiction because at any moment in time, just like the rest of you, I have a stack of reading that I'm behind on, you know? So I feel guilty reading fiction. But I used to really be into science fiction. I loved Tolkien so much that I read it twice and cried when it was over just because it was over. Uh, but if I had to pick one author that really changed my me, I'd pick T.H. White because he wrote this book called The Once and Future King, which is about the King Arthur story. And I urge all of you to read it because he does this thing in this book that actually helps you see the world bigger. And this is where the ants and the geese come in. So he does this thing where he talks about Wart, who's the young King Arthur, gets turned into an ant, and he experiences this very territorial, imperialistic, warlike community that's all very hierarchically controlled by the, by the queen ant or whatever. And then later he turns Wart into a goose, which have no pro sense of property rights. They're not territorial. They work as a community. They take turns watching out for each other and the flock. And it's really a metaphor for radically different ways of thinking about the world. And um, I found that so amazing that someone could take these really specific stories about really specific characteristics of real animal communities and show you this larger pattern in the world and how we could make choices that determine which of these kinds of communities we want to have. And we mostly have an ant community, um, mostly. But there are people, like it made me see communism different because communism was like hopes for a goose community, but it had flaws in the way it was constructed. Uh, so anyway, T.H. White, it's uh, the first chapter, you have to get used to the rhythm of the language, kind of like Tolkien, it's hard reading in the beginning. But once you get into it, it's just beautiful. All right, excellent. All right, so um, Samina, my screen has completely frozen on my end. Can I tap into you to get a group picture? So before we open this up, what we've been doing is we've been taking a screenshot um, and posting it on the STR website to just encourage people to keep coming back and keep looking at this stuff. Samina, do you, do you currently have no? I can do it. So if you feel comfortable showing your video, that would be great if you're dressed appropriately from the waist up. So um, if you're not, no problem. I know people have kids and all sorts of other things going on. So 
when we're ready, um, I'll ask if you could all look at the camera and say cheese or wave or whatever you want to do. So let's give it one second. All well, it's right. fun to see everybody. Yeah, it's nice to see everyone, isn't it? I think it makes yeah, I can't see anybody. My screen is completely frozen. Can you see me? We yeah, can we can see you. You're moving too. Excellent. Yeah, so Heather, just keep smiling at the camera, okay? I'm going to count to three. So one, two, three, cheese. Awesome. I got a nice photo. Thank you. All right, Samina, thank you very much for doing that. All right, so I have a, the last thing I have in my group chat as my computer's struggling here is everyone, Facebook questions here in the chat and Heather will call on folks. Are there any questions in the chat? Should I, oh, my, I'm back. I can move. Okay. All right. So now I would like to open this up to questions. So um, I am happy to call on people. I'm happy to have you raise your hand. Um, I'm happy to have you do a chat. Um, let's see. Does anyone, does anyone want to start? It's always, it's always hard to get the first person to start. First one. Who's going to be the first person here? All right. I have something here. Um, let's see. Uh, how did you navigate switching among writing for different audiences? Okay, so um, Hui, do you want to unmute yourself and ask the question or would you prefer that I just um, translate for you? I'd, I'd actually prefer if you if we could hear you. Um, that would be fantastic. I don't know what technology problems you may be having. <laughs> um, hello. I'm not sure if you can hear me. I guess yeah, so. I can hear you. Yeah. Um, hello, so I'm Hui. Uh, I'm a doctoral student from Kellogg. I'm really interested in cognition, as you did, but when I was writing papers, I realized it is really hard to convince people um, about basic cognition, cognition um, concepts and factors. For example, like the, the way we talk about representation in cognitive science is totally different from how people talk about representation in the strategy world. So right. I was wondering like how you navigate uh, when you're writing your paper, because I mean, in your mind, it's one piece, big, uh, one big piece together. But for your audiences, they may be like very different worlds. How do you switch between writing for different audiences? Yeah. Um, so uh, let me just say that at some point, it became very important to me that a broader audience than just other academics read my work. And I'm, as I've had papers, as I'm sure everybody else has, that I've written, that I put a ton of work into, that you know got cited maybe two or three times you know, by other people doing work really close to that area. And I looked back and I thought, how am I spending my life doing this, right? If, if you can't, if your work's not being heard by a larger audience, what is the point? And my life's too short to, to, to write for two or three other people. So it became really important to me to, to write for a broader audience. But one of, the, one of the things that I believe really strongly is that, and I, I now do this even for an academic audience, I write the way I would want to read in like, the newspaper. Like I write in a very journalistic style and I try to use vivid imagery and lots of examples to make things really concrete for people because I feel like if I can tell a story or paint a picture of something to you, um, you're, you're going to get it, right? And, and so my writing tends to not be super complicated. I, t I, I don't think, I think I write in a very simple, straightforward way, but, um, but I write, I try to write in ways that like my kids could read and understand it you know, or that, or the way I would explain it to my mom, or the way I would explain it to someone who's not an academic, because I think even academics appreciate that, because even, even, even other academics, they're not specialized in your field, so if they don't understand what you're writing about, why would they take the time, you know, to study it hard enough to understand what you're saying, and, and I think we make the mistake a lot of times, I read a lot of papers that 
are written in a much more complicated way than they need to be. And I also read a lot of papers that don't have nearly enough concrete examples to, to like paint a picture for me. And I also think people don't think about the beauty of the words. I think it's when you read something that's written in a beautiful way, and I'm not going to say I'm a beautiful writer, I'm still working at it. But when you read something that's written in a beautiful way, it, there's a joy of reading it, the rhythm, the, 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 the color of the language. And so one thing I always do now is I read my own work out loud. Like I never submit anything, never publish anything without reading the whole thing out loud. And I listen to the rhythm of the words and the alliteration and, you know, the sound of it. Because if it sounds good, I think you understand it better. I think it's easier to, I think the, the aestheticness of the sound and the beauty of the way the words are written actually affects your ability to comprehend it. And certainly your willingness to try to comprehend it. Right. Can I piggyback on that and ask then, you have a piece in a Alzheimer's journal. So that would be an example where I think it would actually, it could be very difficult to speak to that audience. So then, you know, sort of speaking clearly, speaking, sort of making sure you're explaining it, um, yeah. what's going to appeal to that broader audience, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that paper is a funny, another funny story. I'm always trying to tell funny stories or stories I think they're funny. Uh, and that, you know, the problem is I saw a dynamic. So I, so let me just back up a little bit. I had a friend who was in late stages of multiple sclerosis and she was in Scotland on their subsidized healthcare system and she wasn't getting any experimental trials or anything. And I was kind of desperate to find some way to help her. And I set up Google alerts on my computer so that I would get everything written on uh, autoimmune and everything written on neurodegeneration because multiple sclerosis is a neurodegenerative disease that's considered to be an autoimmune disease. Well, it turns out if you uh, get those Google alerts a lot of what's going to come across your pike is going to be Alzheimer's because that's the, the neurodegenerative disease that gets written about the most and diabetes because that's the autoimmune disease that gets written about the most. And I'm a compulsive, absolutely compulsive, obsessive reader. So I start reading all this stuff about Alzheimer's and diabetes. And I start to realize that there's these two factions. Well, there's actually more than two factions, but they're among the factions. There were two factions that had come to wildly different conclusions, like totally antithetical conclusions about the cause of Alzheimer's. And they were both in trials to test things that, that if, if, this, if this team was right, this team was going to hurt people. And if this team was right, this team was going to hurt people. And I thought, well, how did they come to these weirdly different conclusions? I'm going to look at the data and the research designs, and I'm just going to see how they could have come to such different conclusions. And that was a rabbit hole that I fell into. And I have a bit of an obsessive personality and I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything but read about Alzheimer's and diabetes for several months. I was like a total crazy person. If, if, you, if you met me at any point in time, it was the only thing I talked about. And I, my friends were just like, there's something wrong with you. We're gonna have to have you institutionalized. I wasn't even being a good parent during that period, but I just became completely obsessed. And at some point it became really obvious where the methodological errors had occurred and why these teams had come to different conclusions. And it was super, super simple once you tracked it down. Like this team was using, in one of their studies, they were using a synthetic form of an enzyme that doesn't fold the way the human form of the enzyme folds so they weren't getting clumping. And you know, this team also had screened out everybody with diabetes in their Alzheimer's studies. So they had actually, but diabetes is a comorbidity with Alzheimer's, they're related. So if you screen out the people with diabetes, you could actually have a very biased sample of Alzheimer's patients. So there was these really obvious reasons they had come to the conclusions they had come to, and it actually pointed towards one of the solutions being a lot better than the other one. And so I had no intention of writing this paper. 
I just wanted to solve this puzzle and I called up the researchers and I said, this is why you got this result. You're using mouse, you're using Kremlintide, which is based on mouse amylin and it's the wrong structure because it doesn't fold. And, and I had to learn so much language just to understand these papers. You know, there was so much learning that had to happen in the beginning, but if you just keep hammering it away at it, it starts to come together. It's like, it's like reading Shakespeare. You know how like you go to a Shakespeare play the first 10 minutes, you have no idea what they're saying. And then at some point your brain turns on Shakespeare and then you, it just automatically interprets for you. It's the same thing with medical research. If you just keep at it, eventually you start to understand everything, but it's painful in the beginning. And they came back to me, the, every researcher came back to me and said, you have to write it up. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm not a medical researcher. And I said, well, you have to write this up if you want anyone to look at it. And so then I had to spend another three months reviewing. I reviewed about a thousand articles to do this review for this paper and to, to write this, this article. But I think actually it was an advantage um, not being an Alzheimer's researcher in a way, because first of all, I was much more inclined to look broader. Like I wasn't as siloed in. I wasn't trapped in some theory that I felt the need to you know, win at. And I also wrote in a very simple way, as simple as you could write about, you know, insulin degrading enzyme and things like that, so that it, so that it was easy to, uh, easy to understand. All right, excellent, thank you. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, Fatima asks, Fatima, are you here? Do you want to ask your question? It's hard to know where to look on the screen, isn't it? Yeah, it is. might be on another page. Fatima, you might be muted. Uh, or it could be 3 a.m. Hi, hi everyone. There we go, perfect. Can, can you hear me now? Yes. I can hear you. Uh, hi, nice to meet you, Melissa. Uh, hi. Just a very general question on what do you think about the future of AI and, uh, and this research in general? Yeah, um, so I feel like we're talking about AI a lot because we're getting big advances in the places that we're using it and how we're doing it. But I don't feel like AI is new. Like I feel like it's a progression from a lot of stuff that we were already working on. Like we were already using simulations and we were using, uh, you know, regression to figure out patterns in data. And we have, you know, even something as simple as your car knowing when you're exiting and, you know, exiting the lane is, is, is it's really, really, really basic AI. Uh, but now I think we have a lot of data and we have some advances in machine learning and it's starting to feel more, both more exciting and more threatening. Um, and I'm really, yeah, it's, it's so big, it's such a broad area that we're not gonna become experts in it unless we completely change fields and pick an area of AI. It's a bit like Alzheimer's, right? You've got people who do, you know, gradient learning, people who do, you know, kind of natural learning, trying to learn the way like a paramecium would learn. There's lots of different branches of AI with different beliefs and different paradigms and different methods, and they've all become incredibly specialized. And for us as outsiders to come and try to summarize that and know where it's headed and have a good grasp on it is really, really hard. Um, but uh, I don't, I mean, it's not, not, not actually answering your question. You know, one thing I will say about AI that I've, that I've tried to talk to people about before, I did a simulation in learning with Christina Fang. That's a paper I that I really am proud of actually. And we by default used models that are sort of based on Darwinian evolution, right? Like survival of the fittest. And I think it's, it's very 
natural for us to build models based on uh, variation selection retention because we know it works, right? But I, it strikes me that if I were gonna restart the world and create a life form, I might not use variation selection retention as my basis of evolution and learning because variation selection retention is intrinsically competitive. It's based on, it's based on winning in a world with scarcity and it's uh, zero sum win lose battles in a lot of instances. So if I were gonna, if I were gonna create an intelligent, a new intelligent being, I would hope to God that they weren't based on Darwinian evolution because we are toast, humans are toast if we create <laughs> a better, more intelligent being based on Darwinian evolution. We won't survive that battle. We have to develop more intelligent beings that are better than us, right? Kinder, more mutualistic, where the, where the, improvement, uh, the improvement driver isn't based strictly on competition. All right, so we have a question in the chat box by someone who I know it's like 1 a.m. for her, and so she had to leave, but I think it might be useful for others to hear the response to this. So Denisa asked, you know, how do you master all the details of the innovations, technologies, examples that you've written about in your book, um, and what would be a technology that has had a big impact on your life? Big impact on my life or a big impact on my thinking? What, uh, well, she's not here, so you can't, um, okay. <laughs> So uh, <clears throat> I'm gonna go back to that day that Charles told me I had to write the stories of my dissertation. I resented the hell out of it because that was an, another extra hundred pages I had to write. And it was like another six months of writing 16 case studies on these uh, industries. But you know, writing those case studies, which I think I boiled down to a slightly smaller number by collapsing some categories, ended up being one of the most valuable things I've ever done in my life. Because if you sit down and write case studies about industries, you can't help but to start see start to see patterns and contrast and compare. And I think ever since I have realized that it's just extraordinarily valuable that if you're going to study a technology, to just spend a little time immersing yourself in it and fall in love with it, like love it, you know. Like when I wrote about the camera pill. I fell in love with the camera pill and you couldn't come within 10 feet of me without me telling you why you needed to get a camera pill and why you should never have a colonoscopy again and why camera pills were the future, you know, and, and you have to read not just academic literature, not just stuff that you think will be useful. You have to read all the stories. You have to get to a point to where you really read it the way an enthusiast would read it. And once you have in, internalized that as an enthusiast, then you're going to really know what you're talking about with that, with that technology. And so for a while there, I was a camera pill enthusiast. And for a while there, I was an electric vehicle enthusiast. And for a while there, I was a gene editing enthusiast. So I, and, and an Alzheimer's enthusiast. So, um, you know, picking something for a while to just fall in love with and read about it until three o'clock in the morning in your pajamas, if that's your nature. I mean, that's, that's also partially just my nature. You know, I get hooked on things and, and I can't let go of them until, until I understand them. But so that, that's good advice for when you're thinking about different theories, right? When you're thinking about sort of anything, to immerse yourself, to really figure out what is it that is just intrinsically interesting about this to you, right? Why yeah. how does this invite you in? Like, yeah. Excellent advice, not just in terms of uh, examples and innovations, but kind of more broadly. And it's so crucial. I once had a doctoral student come to me with a dissertation proposal, and he was going to use his setting like the mattress industry. And it became really clear really quickly, he didn't know anything about mattresses. 
and he wasn't interested in mattresses. He just thought he knew enough about it to apply his theory. And I just looked at him and I'm like, first of all, someone, someone in your audience somewhere is going to know a lot about mattresses. Their, their sister is going to own a mattress company, you know, a mattress store, and they're going to rip you apart. And it's going to be a horrible experience to be in front of that audience and exposed for not knowing anything about mattresses. But more importantly, if you take the time to really know mattresses and the mattress industry, you're going to tell better stories. You're going to understand these concepts at a deeper level. You're going to see the analogical similarities between mattresses and other industries. So I said, so don't, do not go one step further on this dissertation until you know everything about mattresses, how they're made, why they're made, where they were invented. You know, I think it's, it's, it's super important. Yeah, no, excellent. All right. Um, there's another question by Chang. Chang, would you like to ask your question to Melissa? Can you unmute yourself? Hi, uh, thanks for this interesting talk. Uh, I guess um, my question was, when you were talking about writing a textbook, there are a lot of topics you felt you had to include, but there wasn't a strong research base. And I was just curious what you thought were the important phenomenon today that didn't have a strong research base. You know, like in the past few years, I heard like maybe link startup, things like that. I was just curious from your perspective, given that you've written textbooks and now have done all these uh, case studies uh, too across industries. Yeah, I think right now, for example, I would like to incorporate more stuff on AI, how AI will change management into the strategy textbook. Uh -huh. But I don't think we have enough of a research basis yet about how AI gets deployed in organizations, how it changes processes, how it changes what management is, what roles it's gonna get rid of. I mean, what we do have is a list of jobs we think it might displace. And we have a list of some AI technologies, but we don't have a strong research base of how it changes theory or how it, how it changes management, how you incorporate in a, in a, in a company. So it's hard, to, it's hard to write that chapter or, even, or to even know if it is a whole chapter. Like maybe that turns out to belong in another chapter, but there's just, there's, there's plenty, there's a lot of work on it getting done right now, but it's baby steps, you know, it's new, it's fresh and it's, it's, it's immature. So, so yeah, that's, that's a, one example. I felt that way about platforms about five years ago. I'd say platforms is getting, it's really getting there now. It's actually, you know, I just started incorporating stuff on platforms into both the strategy textbook and the innovation strategy textbook because I think we're getting there now that we have a, a deeper understanding of how platforms changes management and business models. Um, <clears throat> I also think actually, I think that stuff on intellectual property, like we like to, we like to do studies where patents are the DV because we have great big data sets, right? And there's some work on open source innovation, which is kind of about intellectual property, but I don't think there's a lot of great research yet on IP strategy like why different firms use different intellectual property strategies. I mean, there's a little, you know, there's a, there's a bit, but there's not enough, you know? And I had an interesting moment, for example, I had this friend named um, Rick Alden who founded a company called Skull Candy. And then he founded a company called Stance. And you might know Stance makes really cool skateboard socks and Skull Candy makes the big headphones. And I asked him one day uh, if he, you know, what his IP strategy was like, did he get his things patented? you know, tell me about that. And he said, he just shook his head and he laughed at me. He's like, Melissa actually calls me Missy still because he's known me since we were young. He said, Missy, why would I bother to patent any of this stuff when all of my products are gonna be obsolete by the time that patent comes out? He's like, I compete by bringing products to market fast and replacing them. There is no point in me applying for a patent. And I thought, 
crap, why had I not heard this in the literature, right? You really, you don't really read that in the literature that, that there's just lots of categories of goods where you wouldn't bother to patent them because the product life cycle is too short. You know, you hear that it takes a long time to patent, uh, but you don't hear about not patenting as like a strategy because it's pointless. Hope that's helpful. Yeah, no, that was su super interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Chang, hi to your daughter if she's hanging around you. Hello. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You're so cute. All right. Um, let's see. We have, uh, yeah, okay, this is a good question. Uh, Raphael, would you like to ask your question? Sure, thank you. Um, it's a uh, great opportunity for to be to be in talking to you um, to all of you, uh, Professor Schilling. Uh, you have mentioned that you have an, a great ability, in my, in my opinion, to identify crap work. Uh, on contrary, could you tell us how you come up with great or good research ideas? Okay, so I'm not going to say I'm not going to claim to have a great ability to identify crap work, but I will say that I've gotten better at identifying crap work. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, first of all, I'm going to tell you how not to come up with a great research idea. Here's the worst way to come up with a research idea. Somebody says, I have this great data set, go do something with it. I hate all of those papers because people, because data almost never has a great research project waiting to be, I mean, once in a blue moon, but great research ideas come from really important problems in the world problems people haven't figured out how to solve or phenomena they don't understand that they're like, why the hell does that happen? And the odds of their, of you arriving at that from a data set are really slim. So um, I always remind students that data is not gold. You might think of it as gold because you might think it's going to be really hard to find data for the question that you have. But I, 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 for me at least, I really, really believe pick the coolest, most interesting, most important question you can find and trust that you will find the data. I mean, you can almost always find a way to test it. And you know what, even if you can't test, and this, this is kind of gonna be a reflection of my work, even if you can't test it in an incredibly elegant way, or even if you don't have the most beautiful data, if you have an important problem that you have tried to address in a sincere and authentic way, the reviewers are gonna help you and they're gonna nudge you through the process because they're gonna want your paper to succeed. And the reverse is not true. If you have a trifling problem or a, a argument that nobody actually really buys into or that nobody thinks is important, it doesn't matter how beautiful your data is or how great your methods are because the reviewers will always be able to pick it apart, right? So once in a while you get those things through and once in a while you won't get an incredibly important question through. But I think most of the time, Great questions are going are gonna to win the day because you can tell great stories and people want to hear them. And more importantly, once you do get them through, they're, they're sometimes harder. They're sometimes harder to study and they take longer and they force you to learn new methods and to be more exploratory than exploitative. So you're always struggling because you're, you're never at the state of the art or the method you're using and you never have ready data. But, but at the end of the day, if you get that paper through, it gets cited and you can talk about it and you can tell a manager why you're working on it. And they're like, wow, that's really interesting. So I would start every, every, every project now, I haven't always done this, but every project now I would ask, what do managers want to know? Or what do I just really need to know? What is a question that just like would keep me up at night? Like that Alzheimer's question was keeping me up at night. Or like why some people are more innovative. Why Steve Jobs had breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough. That kept me up at night. And I thought that's worth answering. Even if I never get it published, that's worth going after, that's worth spending my time on, you know? Um, 
And I have a really acute sense of like not having enough time. Like I'm always convinced I'm gonna fall over dead tomorrow. So I'm always trying to like use my time well now. I, I should knock on some wood. I'm knocking on wood right now. Pick important questions. That's the bottom line. Pick important questions. Don't worry about the data. Have faith that you will find the data. You will find the data. You will find the methods if, you're, if your question is important enough. Can I, can I add uh, another one? Yeah, please. Um, what, are, so what are the important questions for you at this moment? Okay. So, um, well, I'll talk about the most important question that I sort of just wrapped. I feel like I wrapped was for me at least for a while. I still, have to, I still have to do a bunch of tests, but I feel like I got a grasp on the concepts of it at least, was serial breakthrough innovation. Like, and basically, you know, I wanted to understand was Steve Jobs special or was that a myth? And was Apple just like a good organization that made seem like a, a myth, mythological character? Um, and I st started studying serial breakthrough innovators and, and ended up seeing all these interesting patterns across them and it ended up illuminating so many things for me. So that was like a really, really valuable thing uh, for me. And then since then, I mean, I'm still, I want to test a bunch of the stuff I saw coming out of that, but I'm also really interested right now in, uh, I kind of don't want to give it away, but a paper I've been sort of working on on the back burner a little bit is about synchronization like when it behooves us to synchronize activities and when it behooves us to stagger them. And I got interested in that because I'd studied the video game industry for a long time. And the video game industry had these really strong generational breaks and that made it really fun to study. And then I started wondering why does it have these gener generational breaks? And I started realizing it was because you had these synchronization moments where everybody decided to, you know, everybody launched around the same time for a bunch of reasons. And then it turns out if you, once you start to take the time to understand the reasons you ha have synchronization in video game industries, you actually start to understand why you have merger waves, why you have fads in management. And then, and here's the funny part, because this is going completely backwards from the way you probably should have approached this problem. Then you understand why crickets all chirp at the same time, or why fireflies of some species all flash at the same time. And it's it's, it's not just analogically similar, it is the same reasons. And, and I don't have time to go through what the reasons are, um, so I started writing about bugs. Now, let me tell you how hard that paper is going to be to get published. That's, that's going to be really hard. So I haven't figured out exactly how to write that paper yet, but I am interested in synchronization. Like, remember when Kanye West and uh, uh, 50 Cent, they both launched an album like the same day, and it was posed as this big war of the albums. They ended up getting so much more attention for both albums because they launched on the same day. That's part of the story. It's that if we synchronize our solicitation event, it attracts a bigger audience and it also primes that audience to think now is the time to buy, right? Or if you're a video game, like it, when all the consoles come out at once, all the parents realize that their kids are all gonna want a console this year. This is the year that everybody's gonna buy a new console. Or when all the fireflies flash at once, it makes it so that all the other fireflies can see them and they come to the big tree and it's like firefly happy hour and you have better assorted of matching because you have more boy fireflies and more girl fireflies finding the right firefly mate for them. It's, it's, God, how did I get onto firefly sex? It's just, um, it's an interesting question, I think. So that's one of the things I'm studying right now. Yeah, those, those early interests in biology, they're just throughout your life. I see They like, never go away, yeah. right? They never go away. Definitely the path. All right, so we have a follow-on question from Cheng. Um, 
Chang, do you want to ask, ask this? Well, yeah, um, so Raphael's question I thought was really interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, usually they say that, you know, you want to generate like nice research ideas. You go to conferences, you listen to a bunch of panels, then you like start to see where the gaps are. Um, and then, so I guess the question is, if you do you think like uh, these ideas from Corky where you have to like kind of be like actually avoid these conventional approaches and kind of like be solitude and avoid groupthink, is that the way to generate ideas? So the implication then would be, we should tell our PhD students you should be like quirky and kind of not do these conventional approaches. So that was just like something I was kind of grappling with. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't look for where the gaps are because sometimes I'm not the person who came up with the statement. I think it might've been Rita who said it really well, but sometimes gaps are there because that's a really uninteresting hole right there and it doesn't deserve to be filled. Maybe it was Anita who said that, but, um, I do think conferences sometimes inspire you to see things differently and then it, it recombines with some other idea you already had percolating in your head and you're like, oh, hey, I should write that paper. Or sometimes you see a solution to a, a problem you've been struggling with or like a way of approaching a, a, a method that you hadn't thought of. Um, but I think the best research questions actually come from the world, right? Like just reading about companies and interesting stories and interesting people and asking yourself, how did that happen? How did Jack Ma? become Jack Ma. I mean, holy crap. The guy, he couldn't get into college. He gets turned down from Kentucky Fried Chicken. And now he's got the only company in the world that's a true rival to Amazon and Google. And you're like, how did that happen? That's a question that you're like, okay, if you can understand how that happened and tell that story, people are going to line up to read your answer to that. You know, so uh, yeah, I think the most interesting questions come from the world. So as, as program chair, I'm just going to pipe in here and say that I think you can have these conversations at conferences, but sure. they're happening kind of on the side. So maybe sometimes those, it's not like you're going and you're trying to find a gap that someone, you know, is telling you about, but rather I think like these kinds of conversations that you have with other academics and, you know, sort of bouncing ideas off. I, I think conferences, that part of it can be really, really useful. So <laughs> defend them the conference that's coming up even though we're not we're not going to have those opportunities so. you know can i can i add something um that whole quirky book i don't know if you've read quirky it's a book i wrote on serial breakthrough innovators and and um that i learned so much doing that study that is a result of me getting something totally wrong and and i, I want to start but i was doing network research before i started the quirky project and i believed that the most innovative ideas would come from people having these really replete diverse interesting idiosyncratic networks they would be overconnected people they would be social butterflies who went to different conferences and trade groups and you know they, they conformed to what my mythological idea of thomas edison was and so i had actually written the abstract for the paper i was going to present at sms about that believing i would come to that conclusion after i did the study you know how you can like send the proposal to sms before you've actually done all the work and i was so convinced that i would study these people and see these really cool networks that I wrote my proposal all about, let me show you these cool networks these people have and, and how that helped them become innovators. And so then I started studying people like Elon Musk and Dean Kamen and Steve Jobs and Marie Curie. And I was so wrong. These were like the most lonely, socially broken people I had ever encountered in my life. And I was like, what? You know, oh my God. And, and what was interesting is how, then I started seeing all these weird, interesting, similarities between them that you just wouldn't have predicted. Like if you were to sit down and really get to know Dean Kamen and you sit down and really get to know Steve Jobs, you're going to be like, whoa, that is weird. 
right? That's weird how much alike they are. And if you sit down and really study Nikola Tesla and really study Elon Musk, and if you happen to know something about Steve Jobs at the same time, you could very easily come to the conclusion that Elon Musk is some sort of uh, mystical love child of Nikola Tesla and Steve Jobs. So many commonalities, like intense, weird commonalities. And that's what motivated me to do that whole study on that book. Um, but it was because I had, my prediction was wrong in the beginning, you know? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I feel like I, I missed a question probably by Samina earlier on. I have so many, so I'll just ask one and give other folks a chance to, to pipe in. Um, so Melissa, what, what would, you know, we have a lot of junior scholars on the call. And so, you know, you've kind of led us through the evolution of some of your work, starting with this devastating two dissertations, which I'm still getting over just hearing that. Um, what advice would you give assistant professors as they're managing the exiting the publishing their dissertations into the growing of their pipeline while managing the tenure clock? Okay. Um, so first I want to say that what worked for me might not work for everybody uh, because we're, we're all different kinds of animals and you have to, you have to be that animal that you are. But um, I'll say I was never very efficient. Like I was never the person who built a data set and got five papers out of it. I, because I got bored. After I got one paper out of it, something else would have, got, would have attracted me. And I also didn't use the same method over and over again. And that would have been way more efficient. Because if you use the same method over and over again, you become an expert at it and half, you know, your whole methods, part of your paper is practically written. And so there were people who, who are much more efficient. But, but what I did instead, which worked for me, was to follow something I was really intrinsically interested in. Like I'm a total slave to whatever I'm passionate about at that moment. And so it made me impractical and inefficient, but it also meant I worked long hours and I really, really cared about the phenomenon. And I think that came through when I presented it at conferences too. And I think people cut me a lot of slack early in my career because they could tell I really, really cared about the problem. So even if my methods weren't super sophisticated or even if you know, whatever, I didn't have the, the best data, they could tell that I genuinely wanted to find the answer and I was working really hard. And I think people, I think, that mo I think that's motivating. I think if you follow your passion, you're gonna, and it's so cliche, but if you follow your passion, you're gonna be so much more energetic and it's gonna keep you up at night and you're gonna get on the computer again at midnight because you thought of something that you wanna check out or you wanna write about. And, and I think it makes the job just so much more fun. But it also means that you, you have to work pretty fast and you have to get lucky and you have to know you're gonna fail sometimes because that's the thing about exploration is stuff will fail and you have to just keep going. Um, now there are other people I can think, I won't give names, but I can think of other scholarships, the exact opposite strategy. They very carefully, they very cleverly built a database that they could harvest lots of papers out of. And those papers are, are maybe more incremental and they're not, maybe not cited as much individually because, you know, you look at that body of work and you just cite one of those papers, you know, that you're, you're not citing all of them. Um, that can work really well for people too. So I think that figuring out the kind of animal you are and following that is important. If you are naturally an explorer, don't be an exploiter because somebody else tells you it's more efficient. You'll just hate the job and you won't be as good at it, you know. And so luckily I don't take direction well at all. That's why I became a professor. 
So I just do whatever I want to do, pretty much, for better or for worse. And I'm looking around in the screen. I can see a couple other people that do that, too. Yeah, no, definitely. So, Rich, you have a question. I, I think it's kind of similar. Uh, I would assume that your advice to doctoral students would be find something you're passionate about. Is that, so the question was, what's the most important, what's the most important piece of advice that you give your doctoral students? Is that, the so Rich, you can uh, sort of elaborate if you want, but it's, I think, similar. Would you give similar advice? Are you asking Rich or are you asking me? Oh, uh, you, sorry, Rich was asking you. So, okay. yeah. you got the question oh, right. Absolutely, you know, if, don't pick, pick a, if you can pick a field that you're actually personally interested in, like let's say you're a, a, a plane enthusiast, find a way to study a dynamic in the plane field and you're gonna write such a more beautiful paper and you're gonna work harder on it, and you're gonna like it better and you're gonna understand it better. Like, or if you, um, you know, like for me, I'm like a systems thinker and I often, I often apply biological models to, you may not see them, but in my head, I'm applying biological models to management. Uh, and it just, it, it makes it so much more interesting. And I think when, I think when you're interested, other people are interested. It's very hard to get people to love something you don't love, right? But if you love it, you can infect other people with that love too. Yeah, no, yeah, and as, as a mentor of PhD students, you can tell when a student is just sort of not so into it and it's hard to encourage them, right? It's like, no, find, find something you're passionate about. It's gonna, this is gonna yeah. be with you for so long, right? You're gonna come back to this for so long. Yeah. And the other thing you have to take, and this is, comes from the advice from Charles, you have to remember that it's going to take you, it could take you three, four, five years to finish that dissertation. So you got to go long, right? Don't pick that thing that everybody's studying right now. Pick that thing that nobody's even thought of yet. You know, you got to try to shoot for the horizon to really, I always say hit for the fences because otherwise you're going to get bored. And by the time your work comes to press, you will have been scooped. Uh, you know, go, go big. All right, we have a question here from someone who says that they actually, they don't have the mic, so they're wanting me to read it. I'm happy to do that. All right, so Jen says, I'm excited to hear the synchronicity paper is still something you were thinking about. I saw you present it at WCRS, I think about oh, wow. three years ago. And it was so interesting. Yeah. So my question, is this a typical development timeline for looking into interesting questions? If so, do you work on a variety of projects at the same time, or any thoughts on how you manage getting to tenure while working on interesting questions? Yes, um, unfortunately, this, this is absolutely typical, at least for me, is that I'll have a portfolio of things going, and some things will take a very long time. That Interfirm Networks paper that got that Management Science Award, that took me seven years. That was harder than my dissertation. And I had to rewrite that and recollect data and redo that so many times. And I had so many people along the way tell me that, tell me that, that wasn't gonna get published, you know? And, and it, you know, actually, no, it's the Technology Shocks paper. So the Technology Shocks paper is the one that so many people told me wouldn't get published. And ultimately did get published. And I worked so hard on it. Um, the synchronization paper is kind of, I think it's a paper a little bit ahead of its time and I haven't figured out yet how to tell the story. And the first time I sent it someplace, I, you know, I brought in the bugs because I was really comfortable talking about bugs and frogs and fireflies and saying, look, see how much like video game producers this is. And other people were like, what? Are you crazy? Video game companies are like crickets. They just, they just, it, 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 it went over like a lead balloon. And it's my fault. I hadn't figured out the right frame for the story yet. 
I don't think my theory is actually going to change, but I think I need to evolve how to, how to explain the story to people. Because, you know, I already went through this, you know, when you go have your aha moments, you're getting primed by all these cues and you're learning all these little things. And then when you finally have your aha moment, it's all super clear to you, right? But you can't take that clarity. You can't always take that clarity at least and give it to someone else because they didn't go through all those things that you already went through that made you understand all those patterns. And um, it was the same thing with the small world paper. You know, you really had to have people walk through all the same steps that we had gone through to have that sort of aha moment. Uh, but yeah, so you can see that in the review process, right? So when you get questions from referees that really are very not related to what you were trying to do, you actually aren't ready yet to frame that paper, right? You weren't, you weren't quite there. You're not speaking a language that's simple enough and sort of clear enough that people are kind of understanding your message, right? So that's yeah. The and, and the bottom line is sometimes there are some, there are some papers that can't be written as papers. And that was the problem with Quirky, is that ultimately it couldn't be written as a paper because there was too much that had to go together. Because it wasn't that each piece was independently an additive predictor of innovation. They all had to go together, so you had to tell the whole story and you couldn't tell it all in a paper. And that may turn out to be the same thing with, with synchronization, is that there's a lot of pieces, at least that I've wanted to tell, uh, but you can't overwhelm your reviewers like that. You can't say, learn everything there is to understand about why frogs croak at the same time competing and, and constructive interference and sound waves. You can't, there's only so much you can ask of your audience. And sometimes, sometimes papers just can't be written as papers. They have to be written as books, you know, or sometimes you have to figure out how to carve them apart. And I, some, I sometimes it takes me a long time to do that because I'm not willing. Yeah, no, that's all fair. All right, so uh, this is about how long these things have been going with the ones that I've watched. So, um, Samina, do you have the last couple of questions for you're more the social side of this stuff? Do you want to ask a couple more? I have a few quick fun questions, Melissa, if you don't mind. And then, you know, we'll thank you so much for spending the time with us. So, um, what's your favorite city? I love your answers. They're great. Um, so, what's your favorite city? You've probably traveled the world. My favorite city? Um, favorite city. It's not New York. Uh, <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, I hit a wall with New York. Uh, I think right now my favorite city is Los Angeles. Okay. I like the weather. I like the geography. I like that it's mostly liberal. There's a lot of sports. There's a lot of animals. There's a lot of hummingbirds. There's a lot of nature in Los Angeles, and it's a you know, I, I'm liking that. I. I spent a lot of time in France and, and I'm sort of taking a breather from France now. So not liking any place in France right now, <laughs> but I like, uh, I like LA. How, so you mentioned nature. Um, you, you, you mentioned you do so many things. It sounds to me like you don't sleep to get it all done, but do you have time for hobbies or what are they? What do you like to do to unwind? So I have a lot of hobbies because I told you I grew up in a cabin in the mountains as a single child of an only parent. So I spent immense periods of time alone and we didn't really have, we had like two channels on the television and one was like the local channel. Uh, and sometimes that didn't even work because the antenna would get blown over. So I didn't have brothers and sisters. I didn't have neighbors. So I spent a lot of time developing hobbies. Like I used to play guitar a lot. I used to play piano a lot. I paint a lot. Um, nowadays I have kids and animals and I, you know, in quarantine, I've become one of those people who obsesses on their bird feeder. Like the birds all have names. I've got one that takes almonds from my hands. 
Um, so I love anything. I love to be outside and to be in nature. You know, I like to go running in nature. I used to be a big snowboarder, but I don't snowboard much anymore because you can only take so many hits to the head before you have to, you have to reconsider your life choices. And be responsible for dependence. Yeah. They, they <laughs> yeah. tell me once your kids leave the house, you can have hobby, hobbies again. Yeah, exactly. Kids are a hobby, right? right. And, you know, you mentioned your childhood and that your, your mom worked out of the home and you were alone a lot. But during that childhood, uh, before you got to university, was there any person or event that was really influential in your life that you would think about? That's an interesting question. I mean, I was, I had, I had one grade school teacher for most of grade school because I was in a really small grade school. So I imagine that person had a lot of influence on me, but um, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm probably going to regret this, but I, you know, I mentioned before that my mom used to joke that I was raised by the dog. I really kind of was raised by a dog and he was a really good person. And you know, he loved me so completely and he was so patient when I got mad at him or when I didn't feed him and he would just follow me everywhere. And, you know, it's the reason I'm vegan. It's the reason that I see, like, I see all species as having value and knowing that they feel and they suffer and they love. And so it's always a little unclear to me why we don't treat them all that way. Um, and so it, it really shaped who I am. And if I could do one thing in the world, which it's too big, of course, but, it, but you know, if, if Elon can go to Mars, you know, my one thing in the world would be to try to get everyone to realize that we're all animals and we all feel and we all think. And right now our definitions of intelligence are incredibly ethnocentric and species biased because lots of animals are intelligent in ways that we aren't. And, and, um, there's only so much you can change people because some people are, are always going to be selfish, but, but to at least know, right. That all those animals care about their lives as much as you care about yours. And that you ought to take that into account. I would, I would love to find a way to do that. And I got that from my dog. So, so I guess he influenced me. Awesome. I, well, I can relate. I, my, I always say my youngest child is my dog, Romeo. And, and he knows it, so he knows it for all it's worth. So thank you, on, on behalf of the division, thank you so much for your time today. And um, thank you, this is really an honor. I just, I, I, I don't, there's such an incredible cast of people you've got doing this that I hardly know how I ended up on the list. And I'm really, I'm really flattered and I'm very grateful. Thank you very much. You're, you definitely should be on the list and we're very happy that we spent the time with you. So thank you to everyone for tuning in. Please uh, look at the schedule and, and come back. Visit us again as we're interviewing other people throughout the month of July. And we'll see. We'll see. Maybe people will come to the conference as well in August.